Still the beginning, it's the beginning day, but, but yeah. Also, we're due for a leap year. Next year's gonna be a leap year. Next is gonna be a Shemitah and a leap year. This is a really bad angle. Sorry. It's not, it's not looking any better. Oh, well. Okay, here we are. Oh, it's filled. No, whatever. Yeah, I feel badly. Okay. Oh, I'm fine. They don't want to look at those. This is ridiculous. Okay, here we are, ladies. Parsha Shmini, chapter nine. Chapter, uh, Parsha Shmini is a very, very long Parsha. It's divided into two main themes. Okay, did anybody have a chance to look at the Parsha? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so what are we talking about? I think that's it. Oh. The first five aliyahs are all very short, and they talk about Yom Hashmini, the eighth day of the dedication of the Mishkan of the Tabernacle, um, and the events that happened on that day, the inauguration, the inauguration. As Shani talked about, mentioned over here, we also have the death of Aaron's two sons, which we're going to talk about briefly. That's the first five Torah readings, first at least five aliyahs. And they're all really short. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be all really short. And then you get to Aliyah number six. It's about chapter 11. Um, yeah, from chapter 11, we start going into the, we go into the, the, the conversation about kashas. And it talks about, first of all, the animals that we may and may not eat. What are the signs of a kosher animal? Then we're going to go into the, uh, we're going to go into the birds that we may or may not eat. Then we're going to go into fish situations, and we're going to have a lot, a lot, a lot of conversation about the, about, uh, about the animals, all the different kinds of signs and birds and blah, blah, blah. That's really, in the Cliff Notes, yeah, we finished the whole power show, we can go home, we've done it all, okay? Um, I want to talk about some things from the beginning, and I want to talk about something from the end, and hopefully make some sort of coherent challenge out of the whole thing. So first of all, Shmini, what does Shmini mean? Shmini from the root of Shmone. Keep going, keep going, keep counting. Right, but it's not two. How many brachas is it? 18. So Shmone, Esrei. Eight. Eight, right? So Shmini is, is actually eighth. Eighth, not eight. Shmone is eighth, and Shmini is eighth. Okay, and it starts off by Hebeyama Shmini, and it was on the eighth day. Moshe calls Aaron and his children, and he says, Let's start and we're doing the service. Now, if you actually go right, um, if, you, if you look in Parsha Sab at the end, uh, we have the beginning of this conversation, the beginning of the inauguration of the Mishkan. Just for a quick timeline, okay? For a quick timeline. Moshe comes down from the mountain on Yom Kippur with the message that the Jews are forgiven and therefore, or we're not even getting it, therefore, whatever, and the commandment comes down to start building the Mishkan for Hashem, okay? They build, they have their donation campaign, it takes two days, and the actual, the actual construction of every single part of the Mishkan, the curtains and the sockets and blah, 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 is finished on the 25th day of Kislev, okay? So if they got, they only heard about this on the 11th day of Tishrei, and they have, so they have the rest of Tishrei minus, you know, holidays. Then they have Cheshvan. And then on the 25th day of Kislev, at that point, all the construction is complete. If I say 25th Kislev to you, what is that association? Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts on the 25th day of Kislev. So what? On the 25th day of Kislev, the Jews are ready. They're ready to set up the Mishkan. And Moshe says, no. Yes, the 25th of, of Kislev is going to be a dedication of the temple, but not the tabernacle. And all the things that they made get put into where, wherever they stored it. I have no idea exactly what they did with it. And on the 23rd day of the month of Adar, 
which is the last week of the month of Adar, Moshe says, showtime. Well, he probably didn't say showtime. Whatever he said, let's go. We're going we're gonna to start putting together. And so for that, from the 23rd day, for the last seven days of the month of Adar, they are putting up the Mishkan. Moshe is showing them, you know, like the dress rehearsals for how we do it. Moshe is the acting Kohen Gadol for that week. And Aaron and his sons are learning how to do the service. Um, the I think Rashi brings that that every single day Moshe would take dismantle the tabernacle and put it back up every single day. There's one of the commentators that say that they actually dismantled it and put it back up three times every single day. Um, but basically, there was a lot of prep going on in that first week, and you know they, they've been waiting for this for a very long time. They've been waiting for it from Kislev, Tevei, Shot, other. They're waiting for months to be able to make the home for God, and they're practicing the practice really, and Nothing happens. There's no Shina, there's no nothing. I mean, they're doing stuff and it's very exciting and it's very whatever, but nothing happens. And now our parsha opens up, and now on the eighth day, Moshe gives the reins over to Aaron. He gives it over to Aaron and his children. And he says to them to take an eagle, to take a calf, and a goat and an aisle for a, a goat for an ola, and to start doing the service, and then they're talking about all the different, uh, all the different services that they're going to have to do, and they're going to basically be doing all the things. Um, they 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 take whatever Moshe told them, and they're it's going to go into the details of what they have to do. How Aaron is going to atone for on his behalf and on behalf of um, the nation. And in verse eight, Moshe, uh, sorry, Aaron comes close to the mizbeach and he sacrifices the Egel, and he does and. And the sons do the service, blah, 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 and keep going. And what happens? What happens over here? Um, they're doing all the service and with lots of, with lots of difference, with lots of, sorry, with lots of details of how about the service. And then we have in chapter nine, verse 22, Aaron lifts up his hands to the people and he blesses them. Right? Right? What bracha does he give them? Exactly. He gives them the priestly blessings. Um, and, um, and then they come in and they, again, Moshe and Aaron are going to together bless the people. And they basically give a bracha. Rashi says that, has, that your, the work of your hands is, it should be pleasant, the work that you've done, and it should be blessed, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, in verse 24, look what happens magic fire comes out from Hashem it eats up the it eats up the sacrifice and it's like wow wow like oh my goodness it happened it happened like we have the we have the we built it we waited we had to we had to wait to put it up and then we had the whole you know like the training period and then oh Whoa, look at that. And what happens? And what happens in chapter you, Jamie? Chapter 10, what happens? Read, read, read. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu each took his fire and fire in them and placed it in upon it. They brought before Hashem an alien fire that he had not commanded them. Fire consumed from before Hashem and consumed them. They died before Hashem. Keep going. Moses. Said to Aaron, of this did Hashem speak, saying, I will be sanctified through those who are nearest me. Thus I will be honored before the entire place. And Aaron was silent. Okay. Moses summoned Mishael and Elizaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and, and said to them, Approach, carry your brothers out of the sanctuary to outside the camp. They approached and they carried them by their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had spoken. Okay, here, here's the main, here's one of the main stories, right? What happens is that Nadav and Aviu, if you know, we, if you remember, Aaron has four sons, Nadav and Aviu and Elazar and Itamar. And even within the four sons, Nadav and Aviu were more elevated than the other two sons. If we see how Moshe teach Torah to the Jewish people, he would hear from Hashem, he would teach it to Aaron. Aaron would hear it and then he would stay next to Moshe. Then Nadav and Avihu would come in. Moshe would teach it to them. They would each go one to the right, one to the left. 
then the elders would come in and they would. So there was a place that Nadav and Aviyu were like this, you know? Yes. I thought I remember saying something about them drinking. Okay, so we're going to get into that in a second. We're going to get into that in a second. But, but I want to I set the stage a second. I want to say, who are these two people? Who are these two people? These are not like, you know, the guys sitting in the shook playing Sheshmesh. You know, these were like, like Moshe, Aaron, Nadran, Aviyu, and then all the elders come under them. They're not, they're not slouches. They're very, very, um, uh, very spiritual, very sublime people. And, and if you, if, you know, if you could put it into context of like, they finally got what they were looking for and what did they do? They ran into it, right? They ran into that, into like, into that holy embrace. And I saw when I came in the end of the last class you guys had with Gila before, Break where you're talking about Ratzah Vishuv of going and coming back, that that tension between going and coming. Another one of you are the prime example of one without the other, wanting to go without being connected, without coming back, without understanding that here is where the work is. This is what we need to be doing, not just flying off into you know wherever, but right here, right now, this is what we need to be doing. Um, I want to I want to come back to your comment about Nadav and Aviyu. Uh, but if I don't get back to it, I want you to remind me because my brain is a little scattered. So make sure I get back to that. I want to come back. I want to first preface with two things. First of all, I want to talk about Shmini, about eight. Because what do we know about eight? What is eight not? Hmm? Common, exactly. What's the more common number in Jewish? Huh? Three, seven, right? We have seven days of the week. We have uh, seven becomes, seven is a number. Seven is normal. Seven is the cycle. Seven emotional media. Seven is like the normal number. Eight, you know, and what's the culmination of seven in the week? Shabbos. Shabbos is a pretty awesome day, right? But here, eight is what in, in Hasidic, talk, uh, Hasidic conversation, eight is above Teva. If seven is normal and natural, eight is the one step above. But eight doesn't stand by itself. You can't just have eight. You need to have one through seven before. You need to do your part. Eight is this place of like bigger than I could possibly get on my own. I could do this much on my own. I could push myself. I could work. I could do as much as I can. That seven. If I do my seven like amazingly, then Hashem can give me eight. Talks about like when Mashiach comes, the the harp of Mashiach is going to have eight strands. We're in the base of Mashiach had seven. Eight is like the is the is the infinity number. Even in 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 uh, in you know what's the symbol for infinity? Huh? Aside with eight, so it is it is that place of infinity. It is a place of above the norm, above nature, and really everything that's going to happen here is going to be building on the seven. You don't, you don't just like wake up one morning and like, oh my gosh, I'm so inspired. And I have this fire for Hashem. That, that's not really real. But when I do my seven and I work and I use every part of me faithfully and honestly and really do it, then Hashem's like, I'm going to give you the eight. So what happens here on day eight is that the fire comes and, you know, and, and none of an view. Are, are, are drawn to that fire. They're drawn to that. They're drawn to that, you know? The Gemara tells us um, that there are, I think, 900 or 902 or 903 different kinds of death. And it lists the top and the bottom. What's the best way to die and what's the worst way to die? So the worst way to die, according to the Gemara, is, I forgot what it's called, but it, it describes it as if you were wearing a fur coat walking through thorns. We're yeah, right. That's like that's like you know literally. But if you were fur, it, 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 no, it's not the prevent. Imagine if, if you were fur going through thorns, and it, it's every ripping it up and pulling it apart. That's the worst, worst death. And what's the best, best, best death? It's called misas nishikin, a kiss, a kiss of death. Rashem, and that's how tzaddikim die. Tzaddikim die through a kiss. What was the problem with another view? You're not supposed to want to get the kiss. 
They weren't tzaddikim. We're going to get to that. There's no way they weren't tzaddikim. We're going to have to get into that because so they did. They did. It talks about it talks about over here that what when we're, uh, Jamie just read that a fire came down. Blah blah. blah go back. Right. Yeah. A fire comes in and and consumes them and they die. And what does Rashi say? Um, was Rashi bringing it? No. No, Rashi doesn't bring it. But the measure springs that how does the how does the how did they die? It's not like a fire, like a, a flamethrower and they're charred. It's like a fire goes into their nostrils, pulls out their soul. That sounds pretty painful. Not at all. Like is it not a burning fire, it's not it's just your brain apart. Like you know, you have to go through your like burn. No, 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 no. What's no. a fire more like a wind? It says a fire. Hashem was, was manifesting a fire over here. But it's like Hashem coming in and sucking their soul out. Right, but, right, but in a good way. But in a good way. Yeah. Because, because they're, they're left soulless. And here, yeah. they're, but they're still alive. And here, basically what happens is, is like normally death happens when the machine breaks down. Mm-hmm. So when there's no more container for the soul, when the machine breaks down, then the soul leaves. What happens by a tzaddik? The soul is just removed. It's not that the machine broke down, so the soul had to leave. That's why they gave their bodies. So their bodies were complete. It was, it was, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful death. They were, but what's the problem? You're not supposed to want it. Moshe dies with a kiss. Aaron dies with a kiss. Miriam dies with a kiss. What? With what they're doing? I, I, I don't know. I, I hear your question. Right, right. So the question is. Right. So the question is, no, 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 no. Uh, her point is well taken. Is it considered death? If you, if, is it considered suicide? If you run towards it, you have to understand that these are people. It wasn't a calculated gesture. It was pulled to that godly light so much that they were willing to be consumed by that godly light. They didn't think, oh, therefore, I'm not going to have a life. They were just like, I want, I just want to be there. I just want to be in that light. I want to just like, like mesmerize, pull to that, pull to that place of, of, of being one with Hashem. And what happens when you are one with Hashem? You lose your own existence, right? We're always talking, in Tanya, you're talking about the whole thing with the ray of the sun back to our sun conversation. The ray of the sun in the sun, right? The candle, the fire always wants to go back to the sun, understanding that if it actually got that, it would lose its own existence, right? And 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 really, that's the place where none of any of you were coming from. They weren't coming from a place of like, man, I hate my life. Everything's terrible. This will be an awesome way to go out and you know, in in, in a blaze. That wasn't what it was. So that's the thing. It's not so much that it was a suicide as much as it was not understanding the purpose, understanding this is a great way to die but you can't choose it it has to come to you just like that shmini place it has to come to you you need to do your avoda the whole way through and therefore you um and there and then after that hashem will give you a gift hashem will give you that gift of of of, of something amazing and the place you know james rashi brings a few different examples of what their sin was because clearly something something wasn't perfect because if it was perfect, it wouldn't have happened. If there's something minute off, and then you try to do it, then it, anybody here ever attempt, I don't know if this is actually a good analogy, but it just popped into my head. Has anybody ever attempted to put a screensaver on their phone by themselves? Yeah. Okay, I did it. It was a terrible job. You, you know, like if there was like a little, like a screen protector, like, right? Not screen protector, a screen protector, right? A screen protector, like, if there was like, not even the book, for sure I got a bubble, for sure I got bubbles. But like if there was like, like a, 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 a here little bit of dust someplace, it wasn't going to work. Like that perfect attachment isn't going to work. And really that's what we're talking about over here with another one of you, that they were, they just wanted to be so connected. And yet there was something slightly Here's breath, not correct. And yet, and yet, what does Moshe say to Aaron? 
What does Moshe say to Aaron? Jamie, you read it. This is what Hashem said to me. This is what Hashem said to me in verse three. Bikrovai akadesh, that I will be sanctified by those who are who those who those are those who are close to me. Hashem had told Moshe when he first spoke about uh, when he first spoke about the mission. I'll be sanctified amongst the Jewish people. And Moshe understood from what Hashem told him that somebody was going to pass away when this Mishkan went up, that there was going to actually need sacrifice. Um, and he didn't say anything to Aaron or to, or to anybody. And Moshe thought it was going to be either me or Aaron. He was like, it's either going to be Aaron or Moshe. Like those, who are the two top contenders for people who are close to Hashem? Moshe and Aaron. And when Nadav and Avihu actually pass away, Moshe says to Aaron, I was wrong. They're, they're much more connected than we were. The problem is that that type of life of being able to be so disconnected from life, therefore you could just get consumed by the flame of holiness is not really a sustainable way of living. Hence, Nadav and Avihu pass away. And that's why we have, you know, Jamie says, why do we say that they were drunk? Because the next thing that we hear, Hashem gives a commandment that you're not allowed to drink wine before you go into the Mishkan. When you do the service, a Kohen is not allowed to be intoxicated or have any kind of, even non-intoxicated, you're not allowed to have wine in your system in order to do the service of Hashem. Well, so Rashi's like, well, of course, if that's the next thing that's talked about, then clearly that was their issue. Hasidus talks about there was something, there was you know, like that here's breath of something that they were almost perfect because real perfection would have understood that what was the purpose of everything not to be consumed in the light. That wasn't, that's not the point of creation. The point of creation is just be like sucked up into holiness. Like what do you need a word? What do you need a world for? Just keep with the angels. They'll all be, you know, holy, 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 and everything will be wonderful. Why do you actually need to have people and all our struggles? Because the point of the world is to want to be consumed and to pull yourself back and to say, come back to this world. How do I make a difference in the world? What am I needed here for? It's not my time to say goodbye. I want to still stay here. I want to still impact the world. And that's kind of the point that they really missed over here. And that, you know, if you talk about what's the one thing, I, I guess like I was thinking, it really goes in two ways. Like the one thing I was thinking that we should want it so much. You know, in my first bracha, we should want it so much that we want to be consumed by the holiness. We want to be consumed by the Kedusha. We want to be consumed by God. Halavai. <laughs> you know, that's my bracha to us. But then once we get to that place to understand that that's not, that's not the point. The point isn't to just lose yourself in rhapsody and, 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 you know, be gone. The point is now, how do I take that inspiration and pull it back? into this world and into this life and into my interactions with people, the people I like, the people I like less, the people that I randomly meet. How do I make my life different? How do I make my time different? Because I got so close to holiness. And that's really my first bracha to all of us and, and, and that we should be able to both want and to know that that's not really where we're supposed to be. So that's, that's my first bracha to all of us. And really that covers a very big part of the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the, of the Cedra. I want to also point out something very interesting, which is kind of weird also. Who does Moshe ask to take the bodies out? Right? Mishael and Elisafan. Who were they in relation to Nadav and Avihu? Their first cousins. A, their first cousins, and B, if they're first cousins, what are they also? Yes, they're family, but they're also Levites. They're Levites. They're not Kohanim. Only Aaron's children are Kohanim. Everybody else are Levites. Levites had a place to play in the Beis Hamikdash. They were singing songs, and they were doing this, and they were doing that. And when Moshe says to them, what Hashem needs of you right now is to take the bodies out. They don't say, whoa, why don't you pick somebody else? Why don't you take one of those Israelites who aren't doing anything? Like, can't believe you're making this do. Like, we don't hear that. That isn't what the Mepharshim tell us. They understood that they're avoided right now. I want to be singing Shir Tashem, but my avoided is to take out the bodies. 
my avoid is to take another one of you out so that the simcha can continue. And that's really what I'm meant to be doing right now. I would love to stay and be part of the party. And not only are they out for this minute, they have to go through a whole purification process before they can come back into the, into the, into the Mishkan. So it's going to be a while. It's going to be a time lapse. And, and to understand, I think it's also as, it's almost, I feel like the reverse of what Nadav and Aviyu did to understand that my service is whatever God needs of me right now. Whatever I need to do right now is what I need to be doing right now. It might not necessarily be what I'm like super thrilled to do. It might not be the thing I'm the most excited about, but right now, what am I needed for? That's my avayda. And to be able to do it with simcha, I think for me, when I was learning that, it was like such a, I wish, I wish, halavai, we should be able to like be so present wherever we are and whatever we're doing, that we are in fact able to understand that our Avedis Hashem is here now for what we are asked to do right here, right now. Now, I will point out that it is very helpful in such a, in such a situation. Say that quickly, such a situation, very hard. If you have Moshe telling you what to do, right? It's not, you don't have this like, oh, I'm so conflicted. I could do this. I should do that, blah, blah, blah. You don't have that. Moshe's like, this is what we need from you right now. So they do have that advantage of the clarity of the moment, which we don't necessarily have. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes we, sometimes we want to pretend that we don't really know. If we really were honest with ourselves, we really do know what we should be doing. Not always. I'm not saying we always know, but I think that when we can take the scatter out of our head and pay attention to who we are and where we are and what we're doing and what is being asked of us, we know, we really do know where, what we should be doing. You know, we would like to say, oh, but I didn't know. I can't imagine. How do I miss that? Like, say, what do they say? Your excuses for the, for the judge, you know, like, whatever. Like, Sababa, you want to fool yourself, you can fool yourself. It's not a big deal. My father would say, it's not a hard thing to fool a fool. Whenever I, I used to give him, whenever he used to give him excuses about something, it's not hard to fool a fool. <laughs> so, so that's, 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 that's one thing. I think that like, yes, it definitely helps if you have emotion giving you direction, but I think that really, really, we, we, we very often, not always, but we very often really know what we should be doing. And I want to give us a bracha for courage. Once we actually know what we should do to actually do it, because that's the next second step to be able to actually tap in to what we know we should be doing is not so easy. And uh, that's, that's my second bracha for us for today. Um, um, one more thought on the dedication, and then we're gonna move on to the kosher part of the, the kosher part of the, of the program. Um, so Aaron is given, uh, he's told to bring two different sacrifices at the beginning of the dedication. Sacrifice number one is an agil, which is a calf. If you were to ask me, why does Aaron have to bring a calf as a sin offering? What would be your intuitive answer? What, is, what are we atoning for? Golden calf. Golden calf. Golden calf. I got it. I got it. Like this whole thing is atonement on some level for the golden calf. So we've got to bring a calf as a thing. So Baba, I get that. He also has to bring a goat as a, as a sin offering. That's a little bit harder. What do we need a goat? Why do we need a goat for a sin offering as well? You're gonna have to go back in your memory banks. What happened with the goat? The goat No, that was a sacrifice that they brought. Here's an atonement, a goat for atonement. What did the Jewish people do? Goat connected. Go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. When the brothers sell Yosef, oh, the they take his blood, they take his, they take his tunic and they dip it into the, into the blood of a goat to lie to their father, to deceive their father about what had happened. And one of the messages that we want to go into this building a house for God, because it's not just once upon a time in the desert, we had a home for God, but we each and every one of us, we make a home for God. If we, our siblings, our biological siblings, our Jewish people siblings, if we are fractured, 
if we cannot heal the rift that we created, then we cannot, we cannot come and approach God. That, that the first, you know, there is this place where you can say, oh, it happened such a long time ago. I wasn't even there. I wasn't part of it. It wasn't my thing. Aaron has to bring two sacrifices. One is the calf, which we all got right away. And one was the goat, which was, we had to dig a little bit harder. And I want to give us a third bracha for today. I'm on a roll. It's the Ferris day. I'm on, I'm on the Ferris day. So it's like, yeah. Um, that, um, that we, that we have the ability to heal a rift, a personal rift, to reach out to, yeah, for sure. Oh, it's under the table. Um, uh, that we have the ability to, to, to heal a rift. It doesn't have to be the biggest, most painful thing that we have, but all of us have, you know, maybe we only have slight fractures and that's great. And maybe in the bigger picture of the Jewish people, you know, where it's so easy for us to look at us and them and say, oh, they do things differently than I do. And therefore, those are all part of, we are all part of the same family. We are all part of this people. And we are, all, we are really all in this together. And if we can't pull it together, then that's not so good for, for our prospects. So I want to give us a bracha for, to be able to do that, to be able to, to be the bigger person and say, well, really, they should say something first, to be the, to be magnanimous and be able to, to, to start the healing. Okay. That is uh, pretty much as much as I want to talk about, uh, about the dedication. There is clearly a lot, lot more that we can discuss, but given that we have not so much time, uh, we're going to, we're going to move on a little bit. Okay. Chapter 11 starts talking about kosher. So what do we have? Rifkashir, start reading for us. From two, speak to the Jewish people and tell them. Oh. On verse two? Yeah. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the animals that are upon the earth. Everything among the animals that have split food, which is completely separated into double hoo and that brings up a spout, that one you may eat. But this is what you should not eat from those from among those that bring up their cut or that has split food. Okay. So the first thing that we hear is animals, big animals. Okay. What are the signs of a big animal? Chew your cud and and split hooves, fully fully split hooves. And then the Torah goes on to enumerate four different animals um, that have only one of the signs, right? Three that chew their cud and don't have a split hoof, and one that has a split hoof and does not split and does not chew its cud. Okay, which is a kind. First of all, it's kind of weird. Okay, I'm not talking about the signs. The signs are weird, like they're from God. I can't I can't call them weird, but um, it's it, animals are very easy to say are you kosher are you not kosher the first step for an animal to be kosher is that it needs to chew its cud and have fully cloven hooves sababa why do we need to enumerate those four animals what do we gain by hearing like we know we can't eat them we the torah says you have to animals have to chew their cuds and have split hooves okay these don't. So why do we need the exemption? Why do we need to pull out these four exemptions and say um, you can't have them? And if you look at the wording of the Pasuk, which Rifka Shira read so beautifully for us four times, because it's different animals, it says about each animal that it has this kosher sign, but it doesn't have this, and therefore you can't eat it, which is kind of like a little bit backwards. Say it doesn't have it, so you can't you. Tell me it doesn't chew its cud, therefore you can't eat it. Why do you need to tell me, or the first ones have, why do you need to tell me it chews its cud, but it doesn't have split hooves, therefore you can't eat it. First of all, you don't have to tell me anything about it. It doesn't have two symbols. We know right away that we can't eat them. So, and if you're gonna tell me about these, so then why would you tell me what their kosher symbol is first and then tell me, but they don't have this and therefore you can't eat them, okay? So, 
the so in the Gemara talks about Yadil Torah to make Torah great, to make Torah you know bigger and whatever. So some of the commentaries talk about the idea that it takes God Almighty to say there are only four animals in the world that have only one of the signs, and in history we haven't found more. We have camel family, so you have the llama, which is part of the camel family. It's not like a specific only one animal. We haven't found we haven't found animals other than these four. And you, you know, like if you weren't God, then how would you be so sure without Google that there were no other animals that had only one of those signs? So that's like on, on a more shot kind of conversation of why we include these animals. It's sort of adding to the veracity, is that the right word? The truth of Torah. Because how else would you know that there were only these four animals and you could only know it if it came from God? That's one thing. The other thing that Hasidus talks about is if I were to ask, well, I'm going to preface this a little bit. If I were to ask you to name a non-kosher animal, what's the first animal that's going to come to your head? Pig, right? Do you know there are a lot of non-kosher animals? There are a lot of non-kosher. How come when I say, what's, the, what's a non-kosher animal? Nobody ever says a horse. They don't. It's non-kosher. But why do we say pig? And this is really where you see the, you see like why we're having these symbols. It is the part of them that is kosher that they shine in and they ignore the part that is not kosher. The part that they say, the, all these animals that ruminate, isn't that a nice word? Ruminate's a good word, right? Um, I don't have to do anything outward. I, I'm a good Jew inside. I don't have to do anything else. It is the fact that you actually do something that lets you kind of give yourself a pass that I don't actually have to do anything else. And I think, and something I've spoken about a lot of times, it's like, it's a man, I feel like the place of why is the pig the most, the symbol of the most non-kosher animal, it's because it splays out its feet and it says, I'm kosher, I'm kosher, I'm good. But inside, it's really not. Inside, huh? Not so good. Inside, it's not kosher at all. And that attitude, when we see it on an animal, sometimes when we, Lahavdu, when we see it on a person, I'm kosher, I'm kosher, I'm kosher. Is your behavior kosher or is just your outside kosher? Um, that's a very, very, like, I think that's why the pig gets the rap for the most not kosher animal in the world. It's not any less kosher than any other not kosher animal. But that, that attitude that it displays gives it that reputation as the most not kosher animal in the world. Shani, question. Well, you kind of answer that. Yeah. I was going to say, why there are a lot of people that are Jewish but aren't religious, they um, eat everything that they want. Yeah. Right. It, it, it had, I'm telling you, first of all, because we don't actually, in most modern societies, we don't actually eat horses. Right? We don't. But there are people huh? Rabbits. I'm saying a lot of the, it, it's, it's a very, I think it's a very common, I think it's a very common. Rabbit is common on the. Other parts yeah, of the world. It's Correct. Correct. Because, because I'm telling you, because pig has this thing, it is not kosher. We could, like, I feel like pig and shellfish are like the two things, like, at the end of the day, like, they will, maybe they will, they won't, but it's like that's the last barrier, you know, like not any other kind of not kosher food, but that's like the last barrier. There's, it's a kind um, of a it's, it's a kind, kind of, of a, a rabbit. rabbit. It's kind of a rabbit, but it's not an actual rabbit because rabbits don't chew their cuds. Yeah. So I don't. There's a there's conversation if it's an animal that's now extinct. We don't know, but we haven't found a, you know something in another family of animals uh, that does chew its cud and doesn't have split feet. So I'm saying like there is this instinctive recoil to to, to pig products because you know we and I and I really believe like first of all possibly because it was like the most common not kosher food that other people were eating. So it became like a symbol of whatnot. But I think on a deeper level, I think that we recoil from, from that attitude of putting out a show that I'm kosher and I'm okay when I'm really not. And I think it's, I think it's also, I really believe it's, you know, this is my own, you don't have to take my challenge, but I think it's really also true of people. You know, I remember, you know, you know, hearing things I'm like, oh, and my husband's like, by their outside look, you just, 
in both ways, it goes in both ways. You find people who you wouldn't necessarily think were, you know, deep believers in God based on how they were look, how they look. And then you see people who you think really do there. You look at them and you think they're going to be honest and ethical and moral people. And they're actually not. And it's so jarring when you see it. It's really very, very jarring when you see it. Um, okay. Uh, that's my rant on, on the animals. There are, in fact, very few land animals, which are considered big, mammal, big animals, that are kosher. I think maybe there are 10 that are actually kosher. Then we're going to go into the fish. In verse 9, we have the conversation of the fish. Everything that's in the fish that has snapir vikatkeset, if it has fins and scales, then those you can eat. Um, and it's interesting because if you see verse 10, Shani says that we'll read 10. Um, uh, and everything that does not have fins and scales in the sea, then it has fins and scales in the water. Actually, in verse nine, you see it. If it has fins and scales in the water, then then those are the ones you can eat. And here we have the negative part of it. And there was a conversation, and I don't know like which fish it is, but there were certain fish that when you take them out of the water, they actually lose their scales. And so the halachic determination is if they have fins and scales in the water, even if they lose them as they come out of the water, they're still considered kosher. Mm-hmm. There's some, some fish whose scales are held on, like just barely. And any time you come out of the water, it the, the area. What they said, what they said. So the question is, do they have, do they have scales in the water? The Gemaras tells us a very interesting thing. The Gemara tells us that every single fish that has scales also has fins, but every animal that ha- every fish, sorry, that has fins does not necessarily have scales. So Hasid, every fish that has scales automatically has fins, but not every fish that has fins has scales. So Hasid wants to know, so why do you need two signs? Why do you need two signs? Tell me it has scales. A fish that has scales is kosher. Why do I need the fins? The fins are automatic. Every fish that has scales also has fins. So why are we given two signs for a kosher fish? So there, there is a, there was, when the Rebbe came to America in 1941, he wrote in his notes, uh, and it was found later about this whole conversation about what is, the, what is the meaning of the fins and the scales. And the scales, we know what, how they look. The, um, they're like armor. You know, it's like a protection for the fish. It's little, little things that all protect the fish. It's not one scale on its own. It might be annoying, you know, in your plate, but it isn't actually very helpful, single scale. But, uh, but the whole fish covered in scale, it's a place of protection. What do the fins do? Oh. It propels them and it gives them direction, change direction with your fins. And so the Rebbe says that as people, we need to have... As, as, as Jewish people, we need to have two specific types of behaviors. We have a scale behavior, the things that protect us, that protect us, tradition, Torah, mitzvahs, all of those little things that we do all the time act as a protection. But if we only say scale, scale, scales, then, you know, if we didn't always do it for 5,000 years, then we're not going to do it today. I mean, we're coming from a Chabad Pesach, so this might not be the best analogy to, <laughs> to use. But the place of the, the place of scales is the place of, of, of Torah, mitzvahs, and tradition. And this is how we do it. And this is what protects us. What has kept us Jewish all these years? Do, that we do things a certain way. But what happens? Why does Torah mention fins as well? Because it's not enough to stay in the past. We need to have movement. We need to be propelled forward. We need to be propelled out. We need to go right and left. We can't just say, it's okay that I have my scales and I'm okay and I'm fine and everything's good for me. Can I move out? Can I spread it to the other? And that's really what the fins and scales, as they relate to a person, not specifically to a fish, as they relate to a person, what does that really mean? Sarah? Why is it that the bird fish and home Okay, we're going to get to that in a second. We didn't, get to the, we didn't get to the birds yet. I want to say one more thing before we move to the birds. Oh, yeah. I just I just know this time. Um, talking about, when we talk about chewing your cud, 
and having split hooves as it refers to a person, it talks about two things. When you have a hoof that is totally split, you know that there are things that go to the right and things that go to the left. There are things that we do and there are things that we don't do. And the place of chewing up your cud is thinking about a behavior. And not just say, oh, I did it and it's done, but I have to think about it and say, did I make the right decision? How can I fix it? How can I tweak it better for the next time? So those, when we talk about the signs of a kosher animal, we're not just talking about the kosher animals that we can eat, we're also talking about within ourselves, how do we become a kosher animal? Okay. And Sarah raised a fantastic question. Why do we have a list of the birds that you cannot eat? And it doesn't tell us anything about the birds that you can eat. And we have a funny thing with birds. They have no signs. We don't, an animal, we can check. Chew your cud, has split hooks. A fish, fins and scales, we can check. Birds have no signs. They are only through Messiah. It is only through tradition. And according to Tyra, there are 24 birds that cannot be eaten, which means that there are a lot of birds that can be eaten. Now, how many birds have, do you know as kosher birds? Chicken, duck, turkey, dove. Um, but which one? Like, ostriches are not kosher. Ostriches are not kosher. Um, right. So really, so in theory, so in theory, there should be so many more birds. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm saying we really, in theory, there should be so many more birds that we know that we can eat. But the problem with birds, is we don't have any way to identify them. So when we look, the, the when the sages looked at the list of animals that the Torah gave, they they pulled out some principles based on the animals that were given. So they talk about their birds of prey mainly that we don't eat um, and stuff like that. Like, you know, you are where you eat, but it, but really, really, because there's no way to identify it, there it's only by tradition. If my parents ate it, if my community ate it, then I will eat it as well. And so therefore our 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 bird pool, I was gonna say our gene pool, it's not our gene pool, but our bird pool is really very small because we don't have tradition for most of the birds. Um, of, of what we can or cannot eat. Um, so I want to talk about this for a second. Each of these categories of animals is, right, because Torah very clearly is giving us three categories of animals. We have the animals, we have the fish, and we have the birds. Um, and each of them have different halachic distinctions as far as how we can eat them, right? What do you need to do to an animal before you can eat it? Right, you need, you need to shaft it. You need to shaft it. It needs to be slaughtered properly and without getting too gross into the details, but you need to, in one, uh, in, in one knife pull, you need to sever both parts, their windpipe and their gullet. Okay, two parts, that's how you shaft a big animal. Okay, what do you have to do for a fish? Nothing. Well, you have to take it out of the water. It's called mashok. When you take it out, that's considered um, that's considered how you you don't need to you don't need to shaft an animal. And a bird, you need to shaft it, but you don't need to shaft both of the pipes. They probably have a more official name than pipes, but I don't know. Okay. Now, like I said, I don't want to discuss the uh, part of it, but I want to talk about what for ourselves. What does this mean for us? Okay. In Torah, if I were to if I in, and in Hasidus, really, if I was to tell you land and water, what would you immediately think? What does land feel much more physical, right? Land is going to be much more physical and water is going to be kind of much more spiritual, right? Land is, is divisiveness. You take soil, you rub soil together for hours, nothing's going to happen. How do you get anything material to stick together? You need to add water to it. You need to add water or you need to heat it to liquefy it, right? Those are the ways we get material to become cohesive. Soil in Hasidus is material, it's divisiveness, it's not, it's not intrinsically holy. Water, the fish is submerged in its source of life, and that really is total, total holiness. And then we have something in the middle. We have a bird, and in the, in the creation of birds in, in Genesis, it actually is given two descriptions, and Hasidus says, a bird is made of both water and land, okay? It is both, uh, it, you know, it has both of those qualities. So because we learned a little bit of Tanya, if I were to tell you, so what is our, what is that animal in us? 
Which soul is that? Which soul is it? Our animal soul, right? Our Nevesh is reflective of this animal. It is big, it is coarse, it is shared by all living things alike that, that egotistical, egocentric, survival, but it isn't intrinsically bad. But I need to be able to pull out from it its passion. We talk about the animals as passion, the passion for, for physicality. If I can take that out, then the animal is good and it will serve me. It, it will help serve Hashem. I, it will feed me. It will sustain me. Uh, we have no vegetarians in this group, right? So then it's fine, right? Uh, sorry. <laughs> used to right. Okay. So that's what happens with things. What happens to the fish? The fish is our other soul. Our fish is our nefesh aloki. It is automatically connected to Hashem. It is automatically there and wants to do what Hashem wants. It is surrounded by godliness. It is its source of life. Take the fish out of water and it automatically dies. And the bird is what Hasidus calls the nefesh asichlis, your intellectual soul. You have the ability intellectually to engage the brain and to make choices that are not so animal centered. How do we make choices, right? We talk about Hasidus many times. Your mind rules your heart. What does that mean? We have the ability to rise above our interests, to rise above our selfishness, to rise but based on what we know and what we learned and what we've experienced, we are able to extrapolate principles. And that is where we are like, yes, physical, it's, but it's the highest sense within the physical senses. And for such a, for, and for there, it's a much easier transition to make sure that that our intellectual ability is used for holiness. I want to give us a bracha. We're in the middle of sphera. We're in the middle of refining ourselves. We're in the middle. Now we're in the week of Gevura. And we're, today is Teferah and it's and I want to give us a bracha that we understand that all of these things that we learn in Tyra are not just, oh, in Tyra talks about this, and oh, there's this, and oh, there's that. It all has meaning for us, for ourselves, that we should have the ability to elevate the godly part of ourselves, to lower the animal part of ourselves, to use that bridge of the bird, of that, that intellectual ability. We have the ability to think and to make real good choices and not just instinctive emotional choices and we should be blessed to make good choices be able to better ourselves as individuals and as Am Yisrael as a whole and that we should be able to see Mashiach immediately in the most revealed easy to appreciate way possible. Have an awesome rest of the day. Thank you. Why can't I stop? Why can't I stop? Uh, one second. Sorry, stop.